altruistic life is about more than just doing your best. It's about sharing your best with others around you and connecting with them through our inherent need to tell stories. Hi, I'm Tej, the host at Jezuba Talks. Welcome to this podcast. Today, we are pleased to introduce you to an organization that is doing some amazing work to promote local crafts and sustain livelihoods. In this episode, we learn more about the organization's mission and the impact it is having from none other than Campbell Plowden, the founder of Amazon Ecology. Campbell has been a lifelong advocate for people and nature. He worked as an activist for 14 years to stop commercial whaling, to conserve tropical forests and support the rights of indigenous peoples. He spent two years with the Tembe Indians, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, in the Eastern Brazilian Amazon to study the ecology, management and marketing of non-timber forest products. Dr. Plowden then founded Amazon Ecology in 2006 to help create sustainable livelihoods, to have healthy and empowered communities and resilient forests in the world's largest rainforest. Amazon Ecology now helps hundreds of traditional artisans from 18 native and mestizo communities in the Peruvian Amazon to make and market innovative fair trade handicrafts, as also to strengthen leadership and marketing skills in artisan organizations, so very important. Welcome, Campbell. Thank you very much, Tidish. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. It's a great honor to be invited. I love uh, indigenous craft, art, and everything to do with that is made by hand. So I am very curious to know what you are doing and how you're going about it. Well, Tish, this is the, uh, you know, it's both a personal evolution and uh, an evolution of, of strategy. Uh, I started out working for tropical conservation uh, through global advocacy and doing things like trying to encourage slash pressure the World Bank to stop funding big bad projects. And what I found over time was that, frankly, I was not very adept at working in that high-powered lobbying environment. And so I went back to school uh, to learn some, some different skills. And what attracted me was the idea of being able to work directly in local communities where we could try to make a positive difference at a small scale, literally from the ground up. And so uh, without going into the whole background, uh, I formed the center in 2006 with the simple concept of knowing that the forest greatest asset is its diversity, the diversity of species, the diversity of cultures, and that there must be a way to take advantage of that diversity so that people could make things from forest without harming the forest. And so we landed on handicrafts as a very powerful strategy that could involve hundreds of, and eventually hopefully thousands of people 
because there's really no limit on creativity. Uh, there's just Absolutely. a limit in imagination and, and frankly, our ability to try to convey the values uh, inherent in these products to other people who would like to support forest conservation and local people. Wonderful. How easy was it to communicate to the local artisans that your products need to go to a larger audience and they need to be probably a little uh, better finished or uh, in terms of, you know, better made on a mass scale to reach a wider audience? Well, in the beginning, it really varied a lot from community to community. Uh, in some communities, they had the advantage of being very close to ecotourism lodges. So they were already very much involved in needing to make products that the tourists would be interested in buying. Uh, and so our role in that case was really just to start out buying whatever seemed interesting, bringing it back to the U.S., getting some feedback, and ordering more of the things that sold well. But in some of the more remote communities, uh, they were making products primarily to sell to souvenir shops in the city of Iquitos. And for them, it was a huge investment of, of time, resources, natural resources, and the frustration of putting all of this energy and effort into bringing products to the city and not making much for them and being in competition with hundreds of other artisans making the same thing. So the challenge with them was different. It's like, okay, uh, these people have, have skills, they have access to natural resources, but we clearly needed to come up with different products for which we could offer them different markets. And so uh, I started out buying some of the things that they were already making and finding out pretty quickly that they did not have good markets here. So uh, the first sort of, quote, innovative product was I, for example, I bought a belt from an artisan in one community, and she was really not willing to alter her designs. Uh, mm -hmm. But I took that concept of a belt to one of these more remote communities, which had uh, a dozen, several dozen artisans, and said, here's a buckle. Can you make this thing called a belt? which is long and skinny, and let's see what happens. And within an hour, what emerged were these patterns that looked like Amazon jungle snakes. Whoa, okay. So we went to the school and literally uh, asked the artisans to draw designs uh, with a white chalk on a blackboard of different snakes that they knew. And so uh, we came up with half a dozen models they went back to their homes and spent several days uh, doing that. We came back together and went, oh, wow, okay, this one is pretty good. How can we improve this? And over time, different artisans collaborated, and so that design was refined more and more. And then uh, a musician back where I live in, in central Pennsylvania bought a belt, and he said, this is really nice. Do you think you can make a guitar strap? So... A guitar strap is just basically a belt that's a little bit longer, a little bit wider with a different kind of buckle. Yes. And yes. so we, we evolved that way of adapting one product to another until we reached uh, more of a political impasse. 
where uh, working with this, this one village, we were coming up with new products, but none of them were selling a lot. But we are working in an area with a dozen other communities, and they kept saying to us, okay, you've been saying pilot project, pilot project, when are you going to get to us? And so we really didn't feel that it was just to train them to make more of the products that weren't selling that well. So fortunately, we hit on the idea of doing Christmas tree ornaments. So, so we first, uh, said, okay, you know, what can you do that's kind of small that we can hang from a tree? And so that was sort of the beginning of the next phase of evolution where the early ornaments were not very good. They weren't very interesting, but over time we incorporated this idea of let's do ones that look like actual animals. And starting with birds that were sort of, you know, wacko looking, generic looking birds, but then saying, all right, let's make ones that actually look like the real species. So we brought them pictures of here is this beautiful scarlet macaw. Here's what it looks like from the front, the side, the back, and really being very rigorous in terms of having it look good. And then again, gradually this process of improving the quality. And so that was really sort of the the evolution over over 10 years is working on how do we make more interesting things, higher quality things. The next big leap, big jump was that I was selling things uh, you know fairly well at the one-to-one retail level at music festivals in the US. But there's only so many festivals that I can do by myself. Uh, it's very time-consuming, and clearly the next leap in order to try to help more artisans and have our enterprise become sustainable was to work at the wholesale level and to do a lot more online. So we became a member of the Fair Trade Federation, which is a trade association that represents uh, both importers and uh, fair trade stores in the U.S. and Canada. And so that gave me some education about how to try to work in this more business-like environment. But that then required us to adapt how we were working with our artists and partners. So again, they were used to working very much on their own. So we had to then learn, well, how can we work with the artisans and encourage them to start working together? And how do we develop ways so that they can make the same craft in the same way with high quality? And and that was not just a matter of teaching skills, but a whole other really social approach. Because again, in the past, an artisan who was really good was not very willing to share their skills with their fellow artisans. Because in a limited environment where there is a small market, they saw that as empowering their competition. And so we had to try to shift their whole perspective to say, you know, if I'm willing to share what I know with my fellow artisans and work together, then it opens up a whole different market that we can tap into collectively that is not possible to do working one by one. 
Right. Let's take a break to understand what Jazuba is. Everyone at some point ponders on how this beautiful life can be made more meaningful. Maybe you're a leader trying to enhance your employees' experience at your organization. Or you already work for the community and seek volunteers with state-of-the-art skills to strengthen your nonprofit. Whatever your situation, know that you can make a difference. Chizuba began with this very vision. A vision to facilitate every skill and every passion in the world in meeting a social need. Corporate volunteering has several benefits for both businesses and organizations. In parallel, experienced and enthusiastic volunteers join NGO workers, enabling them to serve the community more effectively. Chizuba offers everyone looking to add purpose and meaning to their lives a chance to connect or volunteer virtually with non-profit organizations from over 100 countries around the world. Visit www.chizuba.net and explore opportunities to find meaning. Chizuba, your platform to do good. And now, back with our guest. So, yeah, a lot of uh, human uh, resources there, right? Managing humans and their behaviors comes in. Very much so. Uh, and, you know, again, sort of, well, how do we deal with the culture as, you know, albeit as, as outsiders? Uh, you know, I wanted to be very, very conscientious about, well, I don't want to be imposing my values uh, onto people who have their own culture, their own way of doing things. Uh, but, but the reality is that in the past, when we first started working with these artisan groups, you know, 15, 16 years ago, the typical artisan was a woman in her late 40s, 50s, 60s. For them, they were making crafts to make a little bit of extra income so that they could buy things like soap, uh, kerosene for lanterns, maybe a few school supplies for their, for their child. Well, people's expectations, people's dreams have dramatically shifted in the last 10, 15 years. So now the artisans we're working with are more typically uh, women who are in their mid-20s to early 30s. So for them, what they want is they want a cell phone. They want to be able to have their children go to a technical school to learn a profession. So yes. what they're wanting is not a way to make a few hundred dollars extra per year, but how to make a few thousand dollars extra of income per year. And so that means that they need to be willing to work in a different frame of mind with a different approach to making crafts that this is more like you know this is more like a job i'm still doing it on my own but if i want to meet these economic expectations for my family then i need to approach craft making in a different way and not surprisingly the younger women are more open to that they are part of the generation that even if they don't have internet in their village they're very well aware of the trends in the outside world they have cell phones. And so part of, of our working with them is not just teaching the manual skills of how to make the crafts, but when you do your marketing, uh, 
if you're going to be selling to tourists, then you need to be very selective of only putting your best crafts up front. You put them on a nice black cloth. You don't just sort of lay them all out every which way on a cement floor. You need to learn how to tell your story about how you made this thing, what it's made from, what it means to you, and then translate that into doing media practice with them. So teaching them the basics of how to work with a computer, how to just do basic word processing, how to tell their own story in words, how to interview their fellow artisans so that they can tell their stories and not just depend on outsiders to tell their stories for them. So these are our organization building workshops that are complementing the sort of the skill sharing. Right. And while you're doing all this, do you also incorporate uh, environmental awareness and the indigenous uh, knowledge that they have to, uh, do you have tourists coming and visiting you? Uh, so the, the environmental part with respect to this work is very much focused on the use of the Chambira palm tree, which is okay. one of hundreds of species of palms, but it is a very unique one in the sense that the fibers in the Chambira palm leaves are very long and strong, and they take to dyes very well. So in the past, when making crafts was a casual activity, there were enough of these palm trees available growing through natural regeneration in their farm fields, in the cycle of uh, clearing a little patch of, of forest, planting their crops like manioc, and then letting it regrow again. And the chambira would come up in that process of regeneration. Well, again, that was enough when you were making a relatively small number of crafts. But as they're wanting to make more money, make more crafts, then the demand on that natural resource has gone up significantly. So the yes. role that we have played is in a couple of ways. Uh, one, introducing the option of cutting those leaf spears with a pruning saw instead of a machete. So that... Uh, eliminates damage to the other leaves that they don't want to harvest. Uh, oh. We have worked with, with people to select the right kinds of seeds from the fruiting trees out in the forest so that they are mature enough so that they are, are not infested with, uh, with insect larvae and also are mature enough so that they don't get eaten by all the rodents when they're put out in the forest. So it's basically showing people how to create backyard nurseries to grow those plants to a point where they can plant them in their fields and have them uh, survive very well. Uh, the other aspect is then, well, what are the protocols for harvesting? So these trees grow a new leaf, maybe only a couple of leaves per year. So in order to be harvesting but still allow that tree to grow, you have to have some internal agreements that you're only going to harvest a very limited number of those leaves per year. And then the final piece, which is really important for the conservation, is the selection of products. So in the past, one of these villages, for example, uh, made and some people still make these beautiful hammocks 
well, nothing against Hemix, but to make one of these products would require 5, 10, 20 leaf spears. And so when you analyze the amount of product you need compared to what you get selling that product, they would be getting maybe $1 to $2 per leaf. In comparison to the ornaments that we are making with them now, they can make 10 to 20 ornaments from one leaf. So the value they're getting from that natural resource is now two to $300 per leaf instead of one to $2 per leaf. So there's all these factors that go into trying to use that natural resource in the most efficient way and to safeguard it for the future. Yeah, wonderful. So many lessons there. Right. So Campbell, tell me what is your favorite craft and uh, what is the most unique and unusual Amazonian craft that you have come across? Wow. Uh, that's a hard question because there are so many I, I'm just in love with, with so many of them. Uh, I, I guess I'd have to say that of the recent ones, I just love all of the, uh, the hand-woven birds. And one of my favorite ones uh, is called the Marvelous Spatchel-Tail Hummingbird, male. Oh, sounds, uh, sounds exotic. Yeah, and this is one where the, uh, the male has these long tail feathers with these uh, blue feathers at the end. And I've seen videos of it where it's, you know, it's like a lot of men. They're, they're trying to show off to impress the ladies. Uh, <laughs> and the dance that this, uh, this bird does is, is just really fun. Uh, and just a great example of, of how men just go to great extremes to try to impress the ladies sometimes. <laughs> that is universal, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and uh, if you could learn a craft, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, I'm just in awe of these artisans because they patiently sit doing this weaving for many hours. And honestly, when, they, when someone is learning to make a new bird, it takes them a full day, day and a half to make one woven bird ornament. I know if I were to start doing that, it would, I don't know how long it would take me. It would take a week and it would still look terrible. Um, so I think of a craft that is maybe within my realm. Uh, I used to do some pretty rustic carpentry. Uh, uh -huh. So I see some, we don't do much with it, but seeing some of these beautiful wooden carvings of Amazon critters like a river dolphin uh, I, I think that would be something that I would be proud of to be able to yeah. carve an Amazon river dolphin, uh, which is a critter that I very much identify with, given my background initially being involved in the Save the Whales campaign. Oh, wonderful. And uh, have, have you seen the product that you are you know, promoting and uh, showcasing? Have you seen it being used in a very unusual way in some place? Or is it used the way it is supposed to be used? Well, I, I think with the ornaments, uh, you know, I think most people do put them on a Christmas tree, which is nice. Uh, but what okay. I really <laughs> appreciated is seeing that a few people have sent me photos where they have uh, created like a little rainforest in their house. So they have an assortment of tropical plants 
And what I, I really appreciate is that some people who bought ornaments from us uh, have come to the same music festival year after year. And they come to our booth and say, okay, what are the new birds this year? And so they are slowly populating their own little personal rainforest back in their house uh, with these birds coming from, from all these different places. Yeah, I think using the product is advertisement enough, you know, to show that it is something that is lasting, something that is beautiful and unique to stand out yeah. to. I mean, maybe one interesting example of an adaptation uh, that came from a customer. Uh, we had a, a student intern who looked at uh, one of our little woven frogs, and they were very cute. But she said, you know, suppose you just, instead of closing it up, you put a little hinge on one side and put a clasp. And so, okay, why would we do that? And said, well, then you could put a ring in it. So, ah, so I, I, I've been using that as our name for this little woven frog ornament is calling it the ring keeper. And so awesome. I haven't seen it yet, but what I'm really hoping for is that someone will do a video where, where somebody has uh, proposed to their fiance or proposed to someone and <laughs> open up the frog and there's the engagement ring inside and have that person go, yes. Um, so yeah, I'll, 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 but I'll get a video like that someday. <laughs> oh, all the best for you. All the best for that. That's amazing. And talking of which, you know, I would love to have one of the necklaces or some product where I could put it here on the podcast and show it to everybody. Right. I would love to do that. Okay. Awesome. And uh, one last question, Campbell. Uh, if you were to collaborate with a designer, who would it be and how would you like to promote that craft? Wow. Um, I mean, would you like it, you know, as an embellishment on clothes or would well, you like it as an accessory? That's a great question. Um, well, you know, the world of fashion is, is not a realm that I delve into normally. Uh, I, I saw some pictures the other day from the, the, uh, the, the Met Gala, and people yes. were wearing these just incredible costumes. So I, I don't know these people, but the name Oscar de la Renta, sort of like, okay, I think I've heard of that name. So yeah. I guess that would be a fantasy, is if somehow one of these high-powered designers were to come to us and said, you know, we want to have a little woven butterfly or woven bird to somehow incorporate into one of these just incredible gowns or whatever that some yeah. some celebrity would would show in one of these high profile events and then wow okay i want one of those and all of a sudden it would create <laughs> this this viral market for whatever this little thing is absolutely well i wish you luck you never know after listening to this podcast somebody might approach you that would be awesome that would be awesome. Yes. Wonderful talking to you, Campbell. It was lovely, lovely getting to know your organization and the great work that you are doing. Thank you very much for being on our podcast. Great. Thank you, Tej. Appreciate the opportunity.